morning, and I'm thankful that I'm able to, to be here under these circumstances and to help Pastor Biggs as he needs to be with his wife as they're in the hospital. It's always good to be here and to have the opportunity to share from the Word of God with you folks, and so we're looking forward to, to that this morning. We're going to open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at as much of the chapter as we can in the time that we have. I want to at least give you a basic framework for understanding how this passage is outlined and how it's all connected to the rest of what Paul's been writing in this letter and also how each of the parts of this chapter connect to each other. And so we certainly can't give all that's necessary for each section of this chapter in the time we have, but I can get you started at least, and you can continue to read it and, and study it for yourself, which is always the hope that you won't just take my word for it or pastor's word for it, but you'll go home and continue your reading and studying, and we're here to, to help facilitate that study of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4 is an incredibly important chapter for believers to understand. It's incredibly important for local churches to understand because what we find here are really the secrets of successful ministry or we could just say principles of effective ministry. Sometimes the whole secret of success sounds a little bit formulaic, a little bit business-like. So I'd rather us consider it to be principles from God's Word that enable us to minister effectively. And I think before we jump into any of the specifics of what's laid out here, it's important that I remind you that every single one of you is in the ministry. I know that's something that I've said even here before. I've had the privilege of speaking here from the book of 2 Corinthians and sharing a series of messages, at least a short series, on the, the, the core thrust of Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth when he's explaining the true ministry of Christ and explaining how he and his fellow laborers compared to all the kinds of false ministries that were, so re that were so prevalent at the time. And the core of that passage was when he says, seeing we have this ministry. See, there was a ministry that Paul had. He shared it with his fellow laborers, but he also shared it with the Corinthians and with all true believers. We are all called to the ministry. And sometimes we get hung up on the differences between vocational ministry and what we would just consider to be a lay person ministry. I understand that some people do this as a job. I am one of those people. It is my primary livelihood to preach and teach the Word of God. We know that there are pastors, that there are missionaries, that there are those who are engaged in full-time ministry, and it is a job for them. That doesn't make it any less a calling, hopefully not at least. But that does not mean that each one of you that are not serving in full-time vocational ministry are not also in the ministry. All of us are called to serve God full-time, whether or not it's part of our paycheck or not. And until we understand that, the ministry of the local church is going to be greatly hindered. If we are to continue to rely only on those who are paid to serve, the work is not going to get done. Because that's not the way God intended for it to get done. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we have this incredible series of truths that help us to understand how as believers, as members of the body of Christ, as those who are in Christ, 
What can we do to see that God's ministry goes forward as He intends it to go forward? And that's really what the entire letter is about, by the way. The letter to the church at Ephesus is one about being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? And as Paul loves to do, half of the letter is theological and the second half is more practical. And so he spends three chapters explaining in depth how we became a part of Christ, how we were placed in Christ according to God's ultimate plan, according to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, according to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all of it combined together, how we were placed in Christ and what that means, what are the privileges, and what are the responsibilities. And so when we get to chapter 4 and we find how chapter 4 verse 1 begins, we see there is a connecting word. I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. So it's important, though we don't have time to go through chapters 1, 2, and 3, because I know preachers who have preached on chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians and did so for six years. The famous preacher uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones at the Westminster Chapel in London spent six years going through Ephesians. And you think that's bad? pastor just preached through Romans here, didn't he? He did. How long did it take him? One year. Good. Martin Lloyd-Jones took 13 years to get through the book of Romans, so I guess you could be thankful. I don't know. But hey, week after week, people showed up to hear him preach through Romans. I, you know, I think we, we probably need to be a little bit more open to, to hearing the Word of God taught systematically than we are in our churches. But all that to say, we don't have time to go through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, but I'm telling you, Paul says we are in Christ With that, there are great privileges, but now because of that, here's what is expected of us. There is responsibility. Because you have been placed in Christ, and because of all the blessings that come with being in Christ, you're expected to do something with it. You're expected to contribute with the gift you individually have been given. So there are three principles I want to share with you this morning from this passage. I'm going to give them to you now because I'm not sure whether we'll get through all three of them. But I want you to at least know what they are. The first principle is this, that unity is our priority. Unity is our priority. The second principle found in verses 7 through 16 is that diversity has a purpose. And then we'll see, if we have time, in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, that maturity is a process. So, Unity is our priority. Diversity has a purpose. And maturity, sanctification, if we could call it that, is a process. Let's begin reading here at verse 1, and we'll go through these first few verses. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Look at verse 3. This is important endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. Let's stop there for now. That's enough for our first principle. Unity is our priority. When it comes to serving Effectively, when it comes to being members of the body of Christ, unity is our priority. 
But do you notice what it says in verse 3? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. There's, there's this idea that it takes work. Unity is not natural. For us as human beings, because we are different, because we naturally tend to highlight those differences and allow them to divide us, unity is not a natural thing for us. Each of us wants our own way. Each of us wants to do our own thing. And so bringing diversified people into one place with one purpose is not necessarily easy. That's why we have to endeavor. Now, we are not the ones creating the unity. Notice what it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. It is because the Spirit of God has placed us all into the body of Christ and because He indwells us all as believers that we have the unity in the first place. He's the source of the unity. But, the actualization of that unity, the practical outworking of that unity is up to us. And if I put zero effort into it, we will not have any unity. It takes work for relationships to function. Have you noticed? They have to be maintained. There has to be effort on both sides. And within the body of Christ, we all need to be endeavoring, striving, working to keep unity amongst ourselves because this is the vessel that God has chosen to reach the world. If the world is a mess, how much more important is it for us to not be a mess? If the world is completely fractured and divided over the most ridiculous of things, how much more important is it for the church not to have that as our characteristic? We cannot be fighting and splintering over nonsense when God has called us to unite as His body and get the job done. You and I have to work to stay united. Now how do we do that? How do we do it? Verse 2 is going to give us some of those things that are absolute essentials of unity. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. That's what it takes to stay united when everything else is pushing us apart. These are the traits necessary for believers to remain united. Lowliness. What, what is that? That's humility. That's humility. I want you to see something else on this one little point. I'm I think it's important that we see another place Paul wrote about this exact principle. You can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is talking to another local body. He's talking about the importance of unity. In order for us to have unity, we all have to have the same mind. That that might sound weird at first. It's not as weird once we define whose mind it is we need to have. But Paul says very plainly in Philippians chapter 2, we need to be of one mind. Whose mind? Mine? Sometimes I think it'd be easier if everyone thought like me. I'd have a lot less trouble if everyone just could think the way I thought. Have you ever thought that? Why can't they see this the way I see it? Well, God didn't make us that way. Does it mean we're all supposed to have the mind of Pastor Biggs? It may be a great mind. But that's not what God wants. Is it the mind of Paul? What a mind that was. 
but no. What does he say, Philippians 2 and verse 5? Let this mind be in you. Also, don't, don't take the tone of let as one of permission. That is, that is one of an imperative. It's an imperative. It's just difficult to put that into words that we would understand as an imperative. So in English it comes out, let this. It's a command. Have this mind. Let this mind be in you. Which one? Which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the mind. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't consider it something to cling to. He didn't cling to his rights as God. Let this mind be in you. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we're going to have unity, we have to have the same mind. That mind is the mind of Christ, and it was defined by humility. When Paul decides, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to explain to us what the mind of Christ looks like in action, he gives us the greatest example of humility the world has ever known. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left heaven to come to earth for you and for me. He didn't cling to all the rights that He had as God. He freely and willingly gave up the free exercise of His power, subjected Himself to the elements of this world, subjected Himself to the mockery, to the cruelty of this world, willingly submitted Himself to human beings and submitted himself ultimately to death and the most cruel death imaginable. That's humility. That's what it takes. But look, the next word is closely connected. Lowliness and meekness. There's not going to be any meekness, by the way, without humility. Meekness is not weakness, as it's often misunderstood to be. In fact, it is power under control. It is the willing submission of your power to someone else. It is placing yourself under someone else's authority. We understand that as believers, we are called to submit to God. We don't often do it as we ought to, but we at least understand that. It's not difficult to understand God's in control. I should listen to him. But what we really struggle with is when it says we ought to submit to one another. But you will never have unity until you are meek, willing to submit to one another. And Philippians chapter 2 is an extended way of saying if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can humble himself and become obedient to others, so can you. That's the point. Oh, there's great theology in Philippians chapter 2. We learn so much about Christology in Philippians chapter 2, but honestly, I don't think that's why Paul wrote it. Paul used the greatest possible example so that we could understand the necessity of being humble people 
who are willing to submit ourselves to others for the sake of the gospel. Lowliness and meekness, that's humility, that's submission. That third word is long-suffering. Long-suffering. There are different words in Greek that we find translated patience, endurance, long-suffering. At least when it comes to the way Paul uses them, there are pretty specific breakdowns. Patience or endurance almost always has to do with how we handle circumstances. The word translated long-suffering almost always is used with how we handle people. And you, you understand in life, we are called upon to deal with difficult circumstances, and we are called upon to deal with difficult people. And I would much rather just deal with the circumstances. <laughs> but that's not how it works. Ministry is people. Ministry is making the relationships. Ministry is helping people where they are. And we, if we're going to maintain unity, we're going to have to put up with other people's nonsense sometimes. <laughs> because not everybody knows what you know. Not everybody has the same background you have. Not everybody has the same experience you have. Not everybody grows at the same rate that you do. And you can rest assured that if you're having to be patient with someone else, there's someone that's having to be patient with you. And if, not, if that doesn't work, just know God is being patient with all of us. Because he could have wiped us all off the face of the earth by now and done something different if he wanted to. We are never going to have unity unless we humble ourselves enough to submit ourselves to others and put up with people that we think are difficult and then it says, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing is the idea of overlooking faults. And that is very difficult to do. It is very closely related to the concept of forgiveness. One which we say we know much about, but in, in practice know very little about. Churches are riddled with bitterness, because someone refuses to overlook something someone else did or said. And churches are fractured because they cannot get past those slights, those offenses. I wish we had time to look at Luke chapter 17 when Jesus taught his disciples about offenses. And he said, you can't help it. Living in this world, offenses will come. Please don't be the one to cause them. But you cannot avoid them altogether. And it is your responsibility, not just between you and that person, but between you and God himself, to forgive them. Forgiveness has just as much, if not more, to do with my relationship with God than it does my relationship with other people. And to forgive at its root is to completely remove. That's what the word means in Greek, to remove to remove anything that stands in the way of that relationship, to remove, ultimately, the record of the offense from my record books. That's what God did. God has forgiven you. He has removed your sins from the record. We talk about forgiving and forgetting. It doesn't happen. 
It doesn't happen unless something physically happens to your brain that causes you to forget. You do not forget things people do to you. That's not what he's asking us to do. That's not what God himself does because he doesn't forget anything. He's omniscient. When it says he's forgotten your sins, it means he doesn't remember them against you. We're asked to do the same because that's what's been done for us. You remember the unjust judge who had been forgiven but wouldn't forgive others? That lack of mercy is incompatible with Christianity. Forbearing one another. If we need unity, and we do, we're going to have to be humble. We're going to have to be meek. We're going to have to be patient with others. And we're going to have to be forgiving people. Not looking at faces and seeing offenses, but looking at faces and seeing people who need mercy just like I do. What else does he say? We'll look at this quickly, verses 4, 5, and 6. There's one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. I think it's important that this is noted here because when we talk about unity and what it takes for us to maintain unity, sometimes people go too far and they think, okay, unity is a priority, yes, but they think unity is everything. And so unity, no matter the circumstances, unity, no matter the lines that need to be drawn. Paul is not calling for unity that has no knowledge or unity that has no common sense. Paul is calling for unity among like-minded believers in Christ. He's not calling for, you know, crossing all the boundaries and uniting in the name of some nebulous religious movement. There are essentials of our unity that are described here in this chapter. There's one body. The Bible says that all those who put their faith in Christ are baptized by one spirit into one body, the body of Christ. This is a local body a local gathering, a local manifestation of that body, the primary vehicle through which God works, by the way, the local church. But there is one body to which we all belong as believers, the body of Christ. There's one Spirit, one Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us all, that one Spirit that 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, baptized us all or united us all into that body of Christ. And we all share one hope, one calling. All of us have the same goal. All of us have the same purpose. We're all on the same team. One Lord, that is Jesus Christ, the head to whom we all answer. One faith, that is one specific body of teaching that we adhere to. And that's where we often get askew. Unity is always rooted in the teaching of the Word of God. If people do not agree with the clear teachings of the Word of God, we are not asked to, commanded to, urged to unite with them. We aren't. How can two walk together except they be agreed, God says. Unity has to be rooted in what is true. It's not just a feeling about, oh, we all need to get together and be united. No, not if we don't have the same purpose, not if we don't have the same Lord that we answer to, not if we don't agree on the same teaching. I'm not talking about non-essentials and debatable things. I'm talking about Sound doctrine and gospel issues. One faith. One baptism. Again, probably referring to the baptism of the Spirit. 
which happens immediately when you put your faith in Christ and you're joined to the body of Christ. One God and Father of all. He is the source. He is the one for whom we serve. He's above all. He's through all. He's in you all. Unity is the priority. It is absolutely essential for us if we're going to carry out the work of the ministry that we be united and it's going to take work. But look at verse 7. Starting this next section of the chapter and the second principle, diversity has a purpose. Look what he says. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So, unity is, is our priority. It's what's expected of us. But we are all different. We've all been gifted uniquely. And that diversity does not defeat unity, but it's actually for the purpose of strengthening that unity. Because by all of us having differing gifts, it reveals that we all need each other. The body of Christ, we need all the functions to work together. Verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. A lot of strange teachings have come from this passage, but can I just make it simple? Jesus came to earth, he died, he went back to heaven. When he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave spiritual gifts. That's all it's saying. Jesus ultimately is the giver of gifts, though he did it by giving the ultimate gift of his Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit of God that indwells each of us and gives each of us those spiritual gifts. We call them spiritual gifts because they are gifts that come from the Spirit of God. They are supernatural gifts. They're not natural talents and natural abilities. We have those. God uses those, yes. But no one is born with a spiritual gift. Spiritual gift is given, imparted by the Holy Spirit of God. He gave those gifts. Now, there are three passages in the Bible that talk about those gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and here in Ephesians chapter 4. In those other two passages in Romans and 1 Corinthians, those gifts are certain traits or abilities. Here, the gifts are gifted people. Offices that God has given for the church to function. He gave some apostles and some prophets. Those are offices that were necessary for the establishment of the church. In the first century, we still had apostles, we still had prophets, because God was still communicating revelation as it was being written down in his inspired word. But there's no need for any new revelation because we have the completed word of God. Apostles and prophets do not exist anymore, no matter who the person on TV says they are. There are no apostles, there are no prophets. Now, there are people who like to split hairs and say, well, it's kind of like the gift of prophecy, this gift I have of confronting sin. Nope, that's just doing what the Bible says to do in confronting people who are sinners. And for some people, it's just an excuse for their judgmental attitude. It's not a spiritual gift to judge other people and frown upon their choices. There are no more apostles, and there are no more prophets. They were essential, but they're not essential any longer. What else did he give us, though? Evangelists, we still have those. Pastors and teachers. These are gifted people God has given to the church. But we also have to bring into this those other gifts. So not everyone sitting out there has been called and given a gift to be a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist, or those things. But you've all been given at least one, if not multiple, spiritual gifts. 
administration, service, mercy, giving, encouragement, all those different gifts that God has given for us to use. Why did he give them to us? Verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The perfecting of the saints, that's maturity. The work of the ministry, that's ministry. And the edifying of the body of Christ, that's multiplication. God gave us all those gifts so that all those things could be carried out. The perfecting of the saints is talking about the individual work of maturity that happens in the life of each believer. God's plan for us is that we grow in the context of a local church. We need each other, okay? And we should be discipling others all the time. That is the core of the Great Commission. To make disciples of all nations. Teaching them all things that we were commanded. There is this necessity placed upon us to see to it that other believers are matured. So the perfecting of the saints, that's individual maturity of believers. The work of the ministry, that is just plain and simple talking about the actual labor that goes into carrying out the ministry of the church. Ministry is, an, is just another word for service. There is work involved. It is labor-intensive at times. But you know what? It gets easier if everyone gets involved. Those gifts are given so that the work of the ministry could be carried out without it being so burdensome. When only one or two people are carrying the load, it's difficult. But when everyone contributes, it's not that difficult. Perfecting of the saints, that's maturity. The work of the ministry, that is the ministry, the service, the work that needs to be done. The edifying of the body of Christ, that's the multiplication. That's the part everyone wants to get to. That's the part everyone thinks signifies success. But it's literally talking about building up the body of Christ. So we went from individual growth in in individual believers to now the growth of the body, the growth of the church as a whole, which Growth does include adding new members. But multiplication doesn't always look like exponential growth in one location. The church I grew up in, in Hopewell, was pastored by my grandfather for 50 consecutive years. It's now pastored by my father. It's never been a big church. At its height, in the 70s and 80s, a couple hundred people probably. But the entirety of my childhood, 100 people was a good day. But you know what else was happening? All during those years my grandfather served there is he was bringing in young men and training them. And there are at least 20 or more pastors and missionaries around the world today because he saw our church as a training ground for other ministers and not people to hoard and keep for himself. Multiplication doesn't always look like one megachurch. Multiplication often looks like 20 or 30 other churches that come from one. But that's God's plan. And it takes everyone working together to see it accomplished. Let's read a few more verses about this. We'll probably be close to the end of our time. Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's expanding now on each of those three things we find in verse 12. That's, that's what's happening. He's giving more detail about what that looks like. 
coming together in unity, being perfected, which is the idea of being matured. It's just like growing up physically. We all as believers have to grow up until we look more and more and more like Christ. That's the goal. Another evidence of maturity is stability. Look at verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. As we grow in Christ and grow in maturity, we're not led astray by every new thing that comes along. We know what's true and we cling to it. Another trait is found in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. I love verse 16. This is important. From whom the whole body fitly joined together. This is coming from Christ, by the way. He's, he's the head. From whom the whole body fitly joined together, but notice this, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. There is God's inspired plan for church growth. Every person gets involved. All the power, all the essential things come from the head, Jesus Christ. I'm not expected to provide the energy. I'm not expected to provide the supernatural enablement, and neither are you. God gives us all that. He just wants us to be the hands, the feet, just to get the work done. Notice twice in that same verse it says that which every joint supplieth, the effectual working of every part. Bodies do not function if one part of it decides they're not going to do it, their job. We all need to do our part. I'm so thankful for the many things that Dr. Forrester taught me in the years that I've been able to serve with him, the years he mentored me when I first started in the ministry. My passion for this chapter of the Bible is because of him. But one of the things he taught me, and I think it's made a difference, is this truth taught here that every single body of believers has within it everything they need to accomplish the work of the ministry. There's no need to look outside for help. Within every body, there is what's necessary, but where's the breakdown? Some people aren't participating. Some people aren't contributing. If the church is not growing like you think it should grow, perhaps it's because you're not participating as you ought to participate. If it doesn't seem like things are multiplying the way you'd expect, perhaps it's because there are members, there are parts of the body that are not functioning. Every joint must supply. Every part must be working. Unity is our priority. Diversity, though, has a purpose in uniting us because we all need each other. Now, the rest of the chapter I leave to you. I told you what it's about. It's about maturity being a process. We know that every believer is supposed to be growing and maturing. This is what it looks like, verses 17 through 32. It looks like putting off old things, renewing our minds so that we think like God thinks, and putting on the new things. That's the process of maturity, and every believer should be involved in that process, should be somewhere in that process, and we should be helping others along that process.
These are the principles of effective ministry. We need unity. We need each other. We need diversity. And all of us individually need to make sure that we are growing. There's no place to stop. We must be growing and maturing. All of us together, becoming what it is God wants us to be and doing what God has called us to do. Let's stand together. We'll have heads bowed and eyes closed. We'll have our pianist come and she'll play just a verse or two of an invitation hymn. We won't sing, but we will give you an opportunity to come if God has spoken to you this morning. There's something here for all of us. God has something for all of us to do, something for all of us to contribute. And may we not be the one who is holding back our own gifts, our own participation, and thus holding back the potential of the church. Lord, we ask that you would work in this brief time of invitation, speak to our hearts, challenge us to do what it is you've called each of us to do individually. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As she plays, come if God's spoken to your heart. Take a moment to reflect on the passage.